Hey, so again, uh, we're glad you've chosen to join us and worship with us. I'll invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis uh, chapter 11. We, again, are post-Easter, and so uh, we are back to Genesis and our verse-by-verse and story-by-story teaching through uh, Genesis. So uh, expository preaching, if you're new to Refuge, is a big deal to us. Expository preaching is verse-by-verse preaching through the text. That way we don't get to skip the hard stuff. And we get to skip, and we get to preach through some things that are familiar to us, like the Tower of Babel story today. So I'm hoping that today, as we uh, preach through this, that the Tower of Babel story will actually bring some new light to you and some new insights to you, and the Holy Spirit will use you as He continues to conform you and form you in the image of Jesus. So Genesis chapter one, uh, Genesis chapter eleven, verse one. That's where we'll start. So you can read along with me. I'll ha- we'll have the uh, of the words as well on our screen. <clears throat> now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, "Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly." And they had a brick and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed all over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there to confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over all the face, over the face of all the earth. Let me pray and we'll jump in. God, we love you. We know you love us. God, teach us something from this story today. Let it not be something that whether we've heard it a long time or it's the first time we've heard it, that we just kind of push it to the side. Help us to learn something from you today. Conform us to the image of Jesus. Save someone today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, so... uh, I love roller coasters. If you know me at all and have been around me at all, I absolutely love roller coasters. I always have. I can remember even as a kid, uh, my parents would take us either to Opry. It was Opryland back in the day. They used to have a, a roller coaster park or amusement park in Nashville called Opryland. And we would go there as a kid, and it seemed to me to be the best thing in the world. But I can remember as a kid, uh, my younger brother, Brett, he didn't like roller coasters when, when he was little. So my mom and my dad and I would get on, in line to go through the line, you know, those long lines that you wait for to get on the roller coaster. And there's a picture of my brother when he was literally like seven years old, sitting by himself out just on the sidewalk, uh, nobody around him. And we're getting on the roller coaster like, whatever it is, sorry you're not on here with us, but good luck. But that was way back, you know, in like the 70s, whenever we we don't have to think about things like we do today. But we got on those roller coasters and we were riding them. Uh, So that was my first earliest thoughts of what it's like to be on a roller coaster. Then somebody told me about Cedar Point in Sandusky, Ohio. And if you're a roller coaster person and you've never been to Sandusky, Ohio, are you really a roller coaster person? I think not. 
so uh, so so in, in Sandusky, uh, they've got Top Thrill Dragster, they've got uh, the Millennium Force, uh, and a ton of other new ones that I can't wait to go back. And as soon as all this uh, COVID-19 virus is out, family, we're all going to Cedar Point. Yeah. Yes. And so uh, it also makes me, roller coasters also make me think of Disney. Probably my favorite roller coaster at Disney is, is Everest, uh, Mount Everest. And so, uh, and, and when you ride that roller coaster, it's a pretty cool roller coaster, for, especially for Disney standards. And you get all the way up to the top of this roller coaster and you encounter the abominable snowman. He's like up there and it's like you can hear him roaring and the tracks are out. And so the roller coaster goes to the top of this mountain and it just stops, comes to a dead stop. It's like, again, the tracks are out and you, where are you going to go from there? And you wait there. And then you go again, you go backwards back through this entire, into this entire roller coaster. So somewhat through the same track that you came on, but that's the entire ride. You go up, you stop, and then you come back down in the same direction. Well, somehow I've connected all that to the way our text is today because our text does the same thing. It starts in one place and goes to this one point, and then you get a, a point in there and it stops, and then it kind of goes back in the opposite direction. Uh, it has an apex, and then it's like, no way, Jose, and then it comes back the other way. So uh, Genesis 11 is like this massive turning point in Scripture. It's like huge. Everybody say huge. Huge. Yeah, it's, it's huge. Uh, one commentator says about this text that the account of Babel is one of the saddest and the most monumentous story in the Bible. And so you go, well, why is it sad? And I think as we get into the explanation of the text today, you'll see why it's sad, because you're going to see really people kind of go in their own way and kind of want to do their own things, and God having to come down and intervene so that they're not really pushing against the plans of God. So it's really sad in the way that happens, but it's also monumentous uh, uh, in, in the way because the world culture that spawned from this, that really kind of jumped out of Babel is really kind of the world culture that we know today. And so I think you'll see that again in the text as we get into it. Um, this rebellion that we see and that we'll see today is something that grew out of the hearts of men in that day. And honestly, hearts that could be descriptive of our culture today. Uh, this, this text today describes a, um, a group of people that were uh, kind of put themselves as the imperial selves. Uh, they, they were the most important things in their own lives. It, it's the tendency for people to become the master of their own domain. I, I mean, it's good to be the king, right? That's what people would think in the day. It's good to be the king. And, 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 for, and for as far as my, for my Seinfeld fans, it's also good to be the whiz. Uh, but it's good to be the king is what sometimes we always get ourselves into, that we want to rule our own world. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do, right, kids? Yeah, I know. I know. Nobody likes to be told what to do. I don't like to be told what to do. We like to be in charge of our own lives. And, and really, that goes to back to our deceitful hearts that really want to rule the day. My heart's deceitful. Your heart's deceitful. And we want to rule our own lives in the way that we want to do things. And so the question becomes, what does God think about that? What does God think about your heart? What does God think about my heart whenever we try to rule it in our own way? And if he has an opinion about it, what does he do about it? Um, this is what this story is about. 
And it's really told in a really interesting way. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, how this story is crafted. And, and so it's, it's, it's really crafted in that the second half of the story is a mirror image of the first. This, this is the way that it's really kind of laid out. Uh, you, you, can, you can take a picture of this. I would encourage you to. Uh, and so you'll be able to see what this is like and you'll be able to study this a little bit more. Uh, but you can see how God crafted this story whenever it was told through Moses as he, uh, as he uh, wrote this down and recorded this for us. It's really kind of cool. And, and so this story hinges on verse five. That's really kind of where the apex of the story is. That's when you're getting to the top of Everest and you stop. That's, that's verse five in this story. It's, this is where it all hinges on, and this is where it turns. Uh, and so this is what it says in verse five. The Lord comes down to see the city and to see the tower which the children had built. And that's where everything changes. And, and, and from, so from there forward, the story just becomes a backing out of what the people had actually tried to do. Now, it's been a few weeks since we were in Genesis, uh, and so we, we're, we're back in here again, and we're going to dive in. So uh, what, what many of you may have noticed in this story, and if you've read this before in chapter 11, uh, it pictures the world gathering in one place. And that's what the text told us, that the world come to gather in one place, and they were speaking in one language. But if you remember from pre-Easter in chapter 10, uh, the text told us that the, the world languages were being formed, uh, that, that this is what we covered uh, back before Palm Sunday, uh, th that really we got a table of nations that where the people were dispersed and everyone was described as being scattered and in their own lands, each with his own language and by their clans and in their nations. And, and so if we were putting this thing out logically and in the way that it chronologically and the way it should go, chapter 11 should actually go back before chapter 10 in the way that it was actually laid out. Uh, one of the commentators that talks about this, he says that the order here is thematic and not chronological. And so we have to understand those things whenever we study the Bible. We have to understand and really, really think through. We can't be mindless uh, whenever we read the Bible because we'll miss things like this. He says that the reverse order is a stroke of genius because of the absurdity of the attempt to build the tower and remain one people is framed by the present reality of nations spread over all the earth. And so he's just saying it doesn't make sense if you read this linearly. You've got to come back and just understand where it fits in the context. All right, that's just a little bit for you. You can go back and figure that out on your own some this week. So let's jump into the text. Uh, and see what it says. This is what it says at uh, uh, verse 1. And now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And, and so in verse 1, we see really a picture of solidarity. It, it's where that people are together, and it seems like a good thing. And, and, and we like solidarity when we experience it, right? I mean, we like to be one with people. We like to, to, to be in, in one accord with people. But the question is, when does solidarity usually occur? Well, it occurs when there's no conflict. I mean, think about it in families. I mean, we have a new family here in the Benjamin house, and, and so uh, we're, we're blending families and kind of figuring things out and who, who, who does what and who shot John and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's kind of what we're figuring out. And so when there's no conflict or anything like that, everything's fine. Whenever nobody bucks the system or does something out or sneaks out at night or whatever those kind of things are, uh, I mean, everything's fine and everybody's really happy about that. But whenever suddenly things happen and the system gets bucked, then, whoa, you know, things get a little squirrely around here in the Benjamin house. But solidarity occurs when none of that stuff is happening. 
Solidarity occurs whenever everything is going really well. And so solidarity occurs, honestly, in time of crisis, too. I mean, think about this where we are in the world pandemic that we are with COVID-19 breaking out. I mean, everybody's kind of for everybody else. There's not a whole lot of division. With the exception of Washington, D.C., the reality is we're all for one another. We're trying to help one another. So in times of crisis, think back to 9-11, way back when, in a terrible, terrible day and time in our world, when everybody was for one another. We seemed like one nation together. And we can find those times of solidarity even in those kinds of times. Or, or honestly, even in the tragedy of death, uh, we find solidarity. Because when someone dies, whether they're in a family or a friend or wherever they are, we reach out to people. Even if we're at odds with people in those kind of times, we reach out to one another and say, how can we help and how can we actually serve one another? That happens in a time of tragic death. And usually in times like these, whatever barriers have been created by people uh, seem to disappear, even if it's only for a short time. Uh, In our text today, even though sin was present in the lives of the people, uh, the barrier of human relationships was just not complicated. Uh, It wasn't complicated. There were no varying tongues, no varying languages, and Things just seem to be going really well. Uh, When the text says this, it says one language, it literally means one lip. And so they're they're speaking the same and and they're talking about the same. And and so there's no confusion in their language. And and the text says this, when it says the same words, it's literally translated words, one. And so there's no confusion around the language that they have. And so there's a lot of solidarity that's going on. So the the story as it begins stresses unity and it, there's a universal language. Uh, uh, there's it, it's it, it's all all one together. And one would think that this kind of unity would have promised oneness of faith and godliness, especially post flood. I mean, these people knew the story of the flood. They knew what the destruction of the flood had come. And you would think that in the light of that, that there would be a lot of unity. I mean, people would have been talking, right? If you'd been on the boat, if you'd been on the ark, and you'd been descendants of those people on the ark, that would have been a pretty big story that you would have talked about. And, and, and even sometimes whenever God promised, he, you know, he promised a rainbow. And probably if it were me, whenever it started to rain, I'd be like looking around and go, when this rain going to stop? And I'd see the rainbow and go, I know what God said about that, but I hope he really stops this time. I don't want to get back in that whole flood thing again. Uh, We would know that there would be some type of solidarity around people's lives. But here's what we know too. Sin is always lurking among Noah's descendants. It lurked around then, and it lurks around today. Even in unity, even in solidarity, that sin easily lurks around today. It's always just under the surface. It's always looking for a way to usurp God's plans. That's what sin does. That's what he does in your life. That's what he does in each of our lives, family. Sin has a tendency to upset the apple cart. So we always have to be aware of that. Let's keep going. Verse 2 tells us this. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And so this verse seems like one of those you just read past. You just, okay, people settled in the the land of Shinar and they settled there. Uh, It's one of those you just blow past as you're reading your Bible. They found a place to live and they found a place to hang out together. But what were God's instructions to Noah and his family when they came off the ark? 
If you're watching on any of our social media, type in your answer right now. What, what would it be? What, would, what was God's instructions to people whenever he told them to come off the ark? Put it in right now. I'm going to give you a second before I show you the answer. Put your answer in. Here's what he said. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's what he told the people when they came off the earth, when they came off the ark. That was in Genesis 9-1. And, and, and so this settling together in one place was in direct opposition to what God had told them to do. You, you, see, you see the difference? He rescued Noah and his family from the flood. He says, now y'all get off this boat. Y'all go do your thing and fill the earth with people and spread out. But the text tells us that they were doing the absolute very opposite of that, that they were trying to herd together. They were trying to come together and just live in one place. So even though the first couple of verses could be seen, and Genesis 11 could be seen as, the people were somewhat industrious and they were trying to do the right thing and they were uh, putting their skills to use and they were building a new culture. Honestly, we can see that their motives weren't, weren't pure at all. They were literally going against the very thing that God had told them to do. Look, look at verse three and four and we'll see kind of their resolve in this. Uh, Moses gives us a little glimpse into some of their communication, just a few people that talk. Verse three says this, and they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had a brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then he goes on in verse 4 and says this. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower within its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. I always get pictures of those old Bible movies that you see, you know, that you used to watch whenever there were only a few, and they would literally be the only thing on at night whenever like Noah's Ark would come on. I read them like those guys would read them. Anyway, so the ESV Bible lays this thing out for us uh, in the way as they talk about this specifically in verse four, and we kind of kind of get a view into what it looks like. First, it says this, what did the people do? The people's action was they built a city. And so within itself, again, it just seems like it's not a really big deal, but they built a city. And so that was the action that the verse tells. That's what they were doing. They were building a city. And then the text tells us what was their purpose. Uh, they built the city so that they wouldn't be scattered over all the earth. Remember, they said they came together and they wanted to be together. And so they built this city so that they could live together, so they could huddle up in their masses. And so what were they looking for? What was the people's desire by doing those things? Do you have any idea? Bam, you got any idea? If they kind of came from all over, they, they kind of went against God, and they were going to build together, what were they looking for? Begins with an S. Solidarity. Close. That's a good one. Begins with an S, ends in security. Security. Yes, yeah, security, security. Uh, no, they were looking for security, so they wanted safety. That's what they were looking for was safety because they knew people, they, they knew the people around them, and they were like, let's just live together. And, and we do that a lot, too. There's nothing wrong with security in our world today, but that was completely against what God had told them to do. And, and then so we see some more things from this verse. There were more actions. What were, what were more of the people's actions? So they built a tower that would reach to the top of the heavens. That's what they were trying to do. They said, let's build a tower. It'll reach up to heaven, and we'll reach up to God. And so... Why were they trying to build a tower? What does the text tell us? What does the text tell us in verse 4? It says this, so that they can make a name for themselves. They wanted to be famous. They wanted their name up in lights. If we do this project, then people are going to think a lot about me. 
They're going to remember me. I'll, put, I'll probably just pay some extra gold coin, and I'll put my name up on the top of that tower. I, I want to be known. I want to make a name for myself. And so what were they looking for in building a place, in building a tower that reached into the heavens in order to make a name for themselves? What were they looking for? They were looking for praise. So they looked for security, and they looked for praise. Those were the two things that seemed to be important to the people at this time. The ESV Bible comments on this, and this is what it says. Uh, the Babel enterprise is all about human independence and self-sufficiency apart from God. Say, apart from God. Yeah, apart from God. It's, it's all about self-sufficiency apart from God. The builders believe that they have no need of God. Their technology and social unity give them confidence in their own ability. I want you to listen. If you're at home and you're distracted by your kids or you're distracted by uh, whatever you're doing, listen. I'm going to read this again. The Babel enterprise is all about human independence and self-sufficiency apart from God. The builders believe that they have no need of God. Their technology and their social unity gave them confidence in their own ability. The the builders thought to themselves, they, they, they surmised to themselves that God was localized, that, that he could be reached somehow. If we build a tower high enough that we can get to God. He's in this one place. And so if we build this big enough, if we build this tall enough, we'll get to him, which is a direct contradiction of what the scripture says. If you remember, even before the, uh, the earth was formed, back in the early part of Genesis, the scripture says that the spirit of God hovered over all the earth. God is not limited to one space. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. He is in the past. He is in the future. He exists in the past. It's crazy, right? He exists in the future. Also crazy, right? But that's, that's the God. He is other. He is different from us. And he exists in all those places, contrary to what the people of Babel thought. We'll build a tower, and somewhere up there, we will get to God. And so what they had done is they had created a God in their own image. They were creating a God that they thought in their mind that was like them, that could be localized, that could be found, that could be just, if we, if we can find the door to his house, we'll just build this tower and go up and knock on it. And, and honestly, this is the heart of all man-made religions, um, that man, by his own effort, can do enough to reach God. And if that's what you think, then you're missing the whole point of the Bible. You're missing the whole point of Christianity. If you think, I'll just do enough, I'll build a tower big enough, I'll build my own self up big enough, and somehow I'll reach God, you miss the story of the Bible. Because the story of the Scripture says that God came to us, that we couldn't do it. We weren't good enough. We couldn't keep the law. We couldn't actually build ourselves up and enough to reach God. And so God came and reached us. That's the good news of the gospel is that we don't have to go chasing after him. He comes and chases after us. That's good news. The people then in, in Genesis, in this area of Babel, they thought they were good enough. They thought they were smart enough. And they thought, doggone it, people like me. And they'll like my tower that I'm going to build. And if I do enough to climb higher on this ladder or build a tower, I'll get closer to him. Here's what we know. All other religions, this is what I just said, all other religions outside the gospel of Jesus Christ all teach that works bring spiritual advance. That somehow what I do will make me closer to God. Here's what I would say. Don't look so holy and go, well, I never think that preacher. 
Don't sit back there in your couch or at your kitchen table or wherever you're sitting right now and go, that, that's one thing for me, but that, that, that's one thing for other people, but that's not me, preacher. <clears throat> How many of you have ever adopted the belief that karma is the rule of the day? How many of you thought that? That karma is the rule of the day. How many of you even said that term within the last day or two days or week or two weeks or month? I mean, if you said that, here's what karma says. It also refers to the spiritual principle of cause and effect where intent and actions of an individual influence the future of that individual, influence the future of that individual. So what this person does influences their future and the karma means that they're going to get what's coming to them. This is an ex explicitly a Hindu teaching or a Buddhist teaching that you'll just get what comes to you. Here, I'm just going to tell you, you don't want to get what comes to you. You don't want to get what you deserve. I don't want to get what I deserve. Because what we deserve is we don't want the karma that comes with that. We want grace. We want kindness. We want generosity. We want the gospel to be true so that we don't get what we deserve. Because what we deserve is judgment and hell. That's what we all deserve. So we don't, as Christians, karma is not part of what we believe. We believe that we get a gift from the God of the universe by his grace and for our good. That's a good thing that we need to remember. Kent Hughes says this, that collective apostasy or the abandonment of belief in the one true God had engulfed the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Apostasy. Many times... I think that we live like apostates. That we live like we've abandoned our belief in the one true God and it gets driven by our desires. And it's my hope for each of you that are listening is that you won't abandon God. That you won't abandon the truth of the gospel for your own desires. But you'll trust in his goodness and his righteousness and his grace that's for you. Let's keep going. Verse four. And so the tower builders were clear about what drove them. Look what it says in verse four. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with the top into the heavens and let's make a name for ourselves lest we disperse over the whole face of the earth. They said, let us make a name for ourselves. And honestly, the only mention of making a name for people's selves before this was the Nephilim. The, the men who are of renown. Remember we talked about that in earlier in Genesis, the Nephilim were those uh, people that were the men of re renown. And, and so the, the tower builders were motivated by the same desire for renown, to be known. They wanted to be known for sure. But honestly, that was, that was their desire. But they were driven by fear. What do you mean by, what do you mean by that preacher? Here's what they were. They were driven by the fear of anonymity. You're like, well, that's a $6 word, preacher. What does that mean? That, that means that you'll just be honest, that, that, that people won't know who you are. That they're driven by the fear of, I'll live my entire life and I just won't matter to people. I'll live my entire life and, and nobody will know my name. It won't be up in lights and, and, and nobody will care who I am. And, and so I'm going to do something so that people will remember who I am. Today, we see this literally everywhere in our culture. We see it in politicians, right? 
our politicians that we see today, that they're driven by the fear of anonymity. They want to be known. And so they'll say some outrageous things just so people will know who they are, just so they can make a mark, just so they can get their 15 minutes of fame on CNN or Fox News or whatever those kind of things are, whichever one you watch. They want to be driven uh, by, so that they're not uh, just an anonymous figure. Uh, it happens to preachers. It happens to preachers that will uh, 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 distort the gospel and they'll, tickle, they'll say what tickles people's ears so that people will go, well, I don't want to listen to that Scott Benjamin guy because he's going to talk about some really hard things that the text talks about. Or I want to listen to this other guy over here that's going to tell me that things are going to be good. As long as I do things, God's going to bless me and just he's going to enrich me with more riches. And if I need something, he's just going to give it to me. And if I need a car, he's probably going to give me a car. People love that kind of teaching. Why? Because it makes feel good. But it may not be true. They distort the scriptures. Preachers do it all the time. Uh, we see it in actors where they, they want to the limelight. We see it in, in, in athletes that, that they want to be the, the top of their game. There's nothing wrong with those kind of things of what, wanting to be in the top of your game. But the fear of anonymity drives people to do some of the things that they do. And many of you believe if you can just make a name for yourself, and people will hold you in some esteem, some esteem, some just lift you up higher than where you are. And this will mean that you've arrived, somehow that you've arrived. That's what drives your entire life. We use this language, he's made a name for himself, or she'll always be remembered for this. And, and honestly, the, the drive to do this, to, to recreate ourselves, and when that happens, sometimes the tragic thing is, is that we accomplish this recreation and many times we or the people that we know that really know us don't even really know who we are anymore. Alan Richardson says it well when he said this, the hatred of anonymity drives men to heroic feats of valor or long hours of drudgery, or it urges them to, specu uh, to spectacular acts of shame or of unscrupulous self-preferment. In its worst forms, it tempts men to give the honor and glory to themselves, which properly belongs to the name of God. That happens to a lot of times, to us a lot of times. But in this Genesis story, instead of being remembered, the thing that they wanted for fame and to be remembered and will reach God and, and this will be the best thing that's ever happened in the world, instead of this glorious act that they were going to supposedly want to be remembered for, Honestly, their name would be remembered as a joke. Though we think of Babel, we don't think of something big and grandiose. We think that these, these people just ended up being a joke. The tower builders were, were broken people. And the fact that they were afraid to be scattered over all the earth uh, just shows how their fellowship of God, with God had been broken. But in this story, God would graciously work toward scattering them. He would actually be working toward the thing that he told them to do. This act was a gracious act. The reality is, whenever they disobeyed God, he could have just killed them all. He could have just wiped them out for being such rebellious people. But instead, he graciously chose to disperse them over all the earth. Look, look at what happened in verse 5. This is, this is what the text says. It says that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And 
So the scene in the story switches from uh, where they are on the earth and the people who are building the tower to God in heaven. He's like, okay, let's go down and let's take a look at this uh, tower that the people has built. It's kind of funny the way it's written. Um, the, the builders of the tower were so certain that they would build a tower that would reach into the heavens to reach God. Yet we see that in this text that the tower is so microscopic that the way the text describes it, it's like God had to come down and like, stick his eye way down to see it because it was so tiny whenever compared to God. It was foolish for people to even think that. that but the text tells us that he had to come uh, down and see it because it was so small. It reminds me of the thing from my childhood. Remember this one? Uh, where's the beef? <laughs> Remember that? I know some of you kids don't know what I'm talking about, but some of you adults know what I'm talking about. If you know what I'm talking about, type that in. Where's the beef? Because, you know, that's funny. It was funny every time it came out. Where's the beef? Where's the beef? That's kind of what it seemed like. Where's the tower? Where's the tower? It's so small that we need something different and bigger. Uh, and so now we can see this through God's eyes, uh, that the tower that was meant to stretch to heaven, that the God of heaven can hardly even see it. So what's the point of this? Here's what it is. That man in his own self-effort cannot reach God. We've said it before. But that's the crux of the story is man in his own effort cannot reach up to God. Here's the requirements to be with God. Here's the requirements to be in relationship with God is that we repent. That Here's the requirements. That you live a perfect life, that you never sin, that you never have a stray thought, that you never speak an idle word, that you never deceive your parents, that you never sneak out at night, that you never steal from someone, that you never uh, do a multitude of things. You never have one of those things uh, and, and so that brings sin into your life, to live a sinless life. But the reality is we all know we can't do that. Most of us have sinned this morning after we've woken up already. And so the good news of the gospel is, is that God the Son came and lived that life. The Bible says he lived a life that teaches us that Jesus lived a life just like we live, tempted in every way that we were tempted, yet he did, it, he did it without sin. The scripture then says that he laid down his life, that the only thing that takes away the sin of mankind is the spotless, the, the blood of the spotless lamb. Not the blood of bulls and goats, not the blood of the lambs that run around the uh, farm, but the blood of the spotless lamb of God, that Jesus would pour out his blood to cover our sin debt. And whenever we put our faith and trust, not in our own righteousness, not in hoping we do enough good stuff to get to heaven, but in the righteousness of Jesus, the, the fact that he lived this life, died a death that we all deserve to die, and was raised from the dead three days later, the scripture says when we trust in that, we will be saved. And so we get back to this. Um, verse 5 really tells us men can just have puny efforts, no matter what we think that we do, we have puny efforts to try to reach up to God. Let's keep going. Look what it says in verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is the only beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. All right, so first a thing to note about this text. God is not threatened by humankind's corporate potential. This is not a verse uh, so that you think that God is going to react like this. He, he's not going, oh, no, uh, what are we going to do? Uh, we, we, we're missing this. Oh, no, 
Oh, no, what are the people doing? Uh, no, that's not who he is. I, I didn't expect that to happen. Uh, I, I, uh, I need something. To, no, that, this is not what he was like. He's like, no, th- let, let me explain what this means. Instead, God was troubled by what human was, humans were going to do to themselves. He was really troubled. He was expressed. So this is, again, some theological terms I'm not going to get into here. But God was troubled by what, if man stayed on this path, what would actually happen to them? They they would build this delusion of self-sufficiency. Like we can do anything and we don't need God. I can do this on my own and I don't need God. Uh, They would end up with false religions. They would end up where their corporate security was just in themselves, that their political uniformity, because we're all speaking one language and we're all doing this one thing, that we don't need God. That was the, the, the sentiment that God was talking about. And they would disregard God and attempt to rule the universe themselves. And their delusion would never turn to Him. So, God intervened. You could say, but God. Say that with me. But God. Yeah, but God. Those are two beautiful words. Whenever you see those in the scripture, you'll see something kind of calamity before that, and you'll see but God, and you'll see how he comes in, and he fixes it. Look what it says in verse 7. Come, let us go down there to confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Uh, so the, this judgment from God began the, this alienation of mankind uh, from one another. Uh, this was honestly like their worst nightmare playing out in their lives. Uh, they had planned to build a tower. They had planned to reach the heavens. They had planned to make a name for themselves. Uh, they, and then they were doing all this in the hopes of not being dispersed over all the earth. But that's what the text told us in verse 4. We're going to do this, and so we're going to live here, and we're going to reach the heavens. So the one thing they feared the most, being dispersed, fell upon them. They were scattered. They were deprived of this universal community in which they were trying to live in, and then their tower project just became an afterthought. It didn't get finished. And so God's judgment was complete. And Moses concludes his story in verse 9 when he says this, Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And so now Babel is synonymous with mixed up or confusion or alienation or scattering. Either from the story, or if we talk about somebody's just babbling on and on, that means you're just going on and on and not making a whole lot of sense. That comes from actually this story in the scriptures. And throughout the scriptures, as people refer back to Babel, uh, it invokes reminders of human pride and godlessness that attracted the judgment of God. Um, it, it, it took the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, uh, to pour out his Holy Spirit to truly reverse this whole dispersing of people. I, I mean, that, those are the things that, that we see in uh, in this text and actually through the rest of the Bible. 
that whenever people were sent out and their languages were confused, it literally took God the Son to come to bring people back to one thought, one process to go, wait, there's one God, and people from every tribe and nation and tongue will actually trust this God. Uh, Zephaniah 3.9 says this, that for at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Zephaniah spoke about the reversing of the curse at Babel. That what happened then will actually be switched around so that all the peoples of the earth, all the peoples of mankind are actually proclaiming the good news and calling upon the name of the Lord. And then after Zephaniah, Jesus came, the Messiah came and his death and resurrection and then Pentecost soon after that, whenever Jesus went away and he sent the Holy Spirit, uh, he said, remember at Pentecost, the scripture said that even though that they were multiple tongues there, that each one of them was speaking in his own language. They, understand, they understood one another, even though people were speaking in their own language. Again, a reversal of what happened at Babel when people would call upon the name of the Lord. And so then and today, the message is the same. You and I are called to leave Babel. Leave Babel with its proud dreams and God-defying ways. We're called to go away from that. You're not called to continue to live your life your own way. You don't get to be the master of your own domain. You don't get to be the fact that you rule the roost. Because we all serve under God. God has a plan. God has a plan for you. God has a plan for mankind. And God has a plan for how he wants to use you even in his kingdom. We've got to abandon our Babylonian hearts. We've got to abandon those where we search for security in tangible things. Listen, the scripture tells us that you and I as Christians are just passing through. This is not our home. That we're here for a few years and that our lives are literally like a vapor. They're here and then they're gone. And so we're just passing through onto an eternity, either that we'll spend with Jesus or we'll spend at, at facing the wrath of God. Uh, look, I, I'm not saying this, or what I am saying is that creativity is good, uh, economies are essential. Uh, technology is part of our lives today and, and building things and making things around those things is a noble venture. But in this story, as in many of ours, we must quit chasing a name for ourselves. Be industrious, be productive, build something, but let God be glorified in it and not you. Find your identity in the one true God, the God of this city, the creator who created the entire world, and he who holds it all together by the word of his mouth. One last thing. Uh, the Apostle John says this. But to all who did receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Look what he said. To all who did receive him and all who believed, he gave, he gave the right to become children of God. That's my hope for you. If you've been building your own kingdom, if you've been going about this your own way, John says the way out of that is to do this thing. 
Believe in Jesus. Receive him as your Lord and Savior. And he will give you the right to become a child of God. That's our hope for you today. And if we can help you in any way, will you reach out to us and let us know? We'll pray for you. We'll come to you and open the scriptures from six feet away. And we'll show you what it looks like to become part of the family of God. You pray with me.